Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you take them out and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 20? We're continuing the series that we've been doing, going through the book of Exodus, and more specifically this summer as we've been going through the Ten Commandments together. Today we're going to look in particular at chapter 20, verse 14. We're on the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And what I want to do today is to begin to introduce this command to us. I was studying this in preparation and and saw what a a vital command this is for us. At at the place in which we find ourselves now uh, as a church, as individuals who live in the society we live in, what an important and vital thing it is for us to understand this command, and, and not only the command itself, but to get a little bit more of the foundation of this command. And what I want to do today is is to speak particularly uh, about marriage. To begin to present to us what a Christian view of the institution of marriage is, what uh, marriage is and and what it can be, what it ought to be. And in doing so, I, I don't think we will get the full force of the seventh commandment unless we begin with the foundation unless we begin to see the the true glory and the beauty of what God has created marriage to be and and understand why God has given this as one of his commandments. So I I want to introduce that just a a little bit more in a moment, but first I want to read this text for us so that we hear this is the word of the Lord that is holy and inerrant and inspired and given to us. Let me ask if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? This is Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. 
Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word that is perfect in every way, that is able to make us wise unto salvation, that is able to bring conviction of sin and to take us by the hand and to lead us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would use your word, apply it to our hearts. May we treasure the truth that we learn today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. What I believe is is necessary for us is to have a, a vision of Christian marriage in all of its glory and all of its beauty as the Lord has given to us, but at the same time a vision of marriage that is also brutally realistic, that is true to our day to day experience of it, so that whether we are married or whether we are not yet married, or whether we know people who are married that we will see in this exactly what God has given to us. We need to see that it is a glorious thing. Marriage is glorious. It's an institution that God created. It's part of his original good creation. It was part of the very fabric of what it means to be human. Marriage at its best with its intimacy and self-giving love and faithfulness through trials, its gentleness and friendship, it is as close of a human analogy as we have to the love of Christ for the church. It's the closest analogy that we have in our day-to-day human experience. Even when marriage is not glamorous, it's glorious. Don't get those confused. Even when it's not glamorous, it's glorious. And so we need a vision of marriage that can do justice to the reality that God has given us. But it also needs to be brutally realistic to our day-to-day experience of marriage. It won't help us, I don't think, to paint sort of a pie-in-the-sky picture of marriage that doesn't connect with our experience and reality. We know that in this fallen world, even the best of marriages are going to be the union of two sinners. And at any time, you take two sinners and unite them together in in the closest of human relationships and ask them to to give themselves to one another and to live together, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be sin. And so we need to take off our our rose-colored glasses and recognize that marriage is always going to ask more of us than we have to give. There is nothing better than marriage for bringing us quickly to the end of ourselves, to the end of our resources, and causing us then to rely on God. You see, that's a feature of marriage, not a bug. That it brings us to the end of ourselves. And so we need both of these perspectives on what marriage is. They're, they're complementary perspectives, the glory and, and the reality. They're not competing with one another. A marriage is not one or the other. They are complementary perspectives uh, on understanding what marriage is. And we need both. If your vision or your idea of marriage is only the glory and the beauty, then you will likely set yourself up for disappointment. If Perhaps you will think that marriage is supposed to be the answer to all your problems. If you can only find the right person who will complete you. And you begin to think that if there is then any conflict, if there is then any sin in the marriage, that, that what does that mean? Perhaps it's a sign you've, you've married the wrong person, you've entered into it wisely, and there's no going back. What do we do now? 
you will despair. But if your vision is only on the other side, if all you think is that marriage is, is brutally realistic, that it's difficult and that it's hard, and all you see is the tough reality and not the glory, then you think that marriage is perhaps a bad idea after all. And why entangle yourself with that mess? It'll cause you to turn in on yourself. To get whatever good you can for yourself while you can because marriage starts to feel like an each man for himself arrangement. And so what do we need? We need to embrace both sides of marriage. There is a glory and a beauty of the gift of marriage that God has given. And there is a reality that this is, in fact, even at its best, still the union of two sinners. I think if we're going to think about marriage well, if we're going to enter into it well, if we're going to live in it well, honoring and loving our spouses, we need both these perspectives. And that's what I want to try to give to us today, just as a, a way to talk about this command and the foundation of it. And I want us to start in Genesis. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 2. It, it has always interested me that for both Jesus and Paul, when they want to talk about marriage, they go to Genesis chapter 2. Remember, Jesus is, is talking about it, and he says, you know what was written, that a man shall leave his, his, his father and his mother and be united to his wife. Paul, Ephesians 5, he does the same thing, talking about marriage and teaching on it. He says, here's the original pattern. It's in Genesis 2. And so I, that's where I want to begin as well. The Bible is very interesting in that it starts with God creating the heavens and the earth. And the very first event then is a wedding, Adam and Eve. And the Bible ends, at the end of Revelation, God creates a new heavens and a new earth. And what do we see? A wedding. The wedding banquet of the Lamb. It, it, it casts this shadow from both directions. That, that It's weddings is what the Bible is about. And what's interesting about that is that it's not just the beginning and the end. It's throughout the Bible. The Bible over and over goes back to this imagery to describe not only marriage itself, but to describe the relationship between God and his people, Christ and his church. To give that to us over and over as this grand overarching analogy of what is salvation like? What does God, how does he feel about his people? And so I want us to start here in Genesis chapter 2, and I want us to see three things about marriage. It's complementary, it's a covenant, and it's Christ-centered. It's complementary, it's a covenant, it's Christ-centered. First of all, it is a complementary arrangement. And this is one of the glories and also the profound mysteries of marriage is that God has made man and woman profoundly different and yet complementary to one another. Profoundly different and yet complementary to one another. I think... If you've been married for, let's say, more than two days, I think you will relate to this. That men and women are simply different. Uh, that, that because your spouse is, is a woman or because your spouse is a man, there is something intrinsically different about them that goes to the very core of who they are. It's not just personality. It's not just taste, but that there's a created difference. That God has created man and woman differently. Some say they're from different planets. A little extreme, but only a little, right? right? We're from the same planet, and yet we recognize that there is a great difference here. And, and most of us can recognize, at least at times, 
It's those differences that will make marriage wonderful, satisfying, and deeply so and fulfilling, but it's those very same differences that can make marriage so confounding and such a profound mystery to try to understand is that men and women are different. And we can trace those differences to the creation story of Genesis chapter 2. Look at Genesis chapter 2. Even we'll start in verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. Now, remember, Genesis 1 has been the creation story, and God has said, It is good. He looked, and it was good. And he gets to the end, and he looks, and he says, It is very good. Genesis 2 now is zooming in sort of on that sixth day of creation. And God has created man, and he says, It's not good. This is the one thing he sees that's not good. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to all the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man, and then the man said, This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, when God sees the dilemma in in verse 18, that it's not good for man to be alone, he resolves, saying, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, that word helper is very interesting. God says he is going to make somebody to be a helper for man. The Hebrew word there is ezer. Ezer, one of my favorite Hebrew words. It means helper, means one who supplies what is lacking. One who supplies the strength that is lacking. One who can come alongside and help in order to pursue the good of the other. Now, that is a great word. It is a word that is in no way demeaning. We know that because it's a word that is most commonly used for God himself. That God is the helper of Israel. He is their help. Psalm 146.5 Blessed is he whose ezer, whose help, is the God of Jacob. God himself is your helper. He's the one who supplies for you what you don't have. If you take the word ezer and and sort of say, God is my help, and and shorten it down, it becomes the name Ezra. Yahweh is my ezer, Ezra, which is why I love the name Ezra, because it speaks to the fact that God is our help. And so the woman is to be a helper who is fit for him. And this is what I mean by saying that I believe marriage is to be complementary, is that God makes women to be fit for man. Now, what does it mean when two things are complementary to one another? It means that they are designed to work together in perfect harmony, to fit with one another. They're not identical, but they are complementary. For instance, every person has two hands, and they are different. I have a right and a left. It would do me Very little good if I had two right hands because they wouldn't work together. I need a right 
and I need a left. They're not identical. They're complementary. And I believe that God has created man and woman here in Genesis not to be identical, but to be complementary, to work together, to fit together, to complement one another perfectly. They're not identical. God doesn't look and see, well, Adam is alone. Let me make, make another one just like him. That would solve some of the problems of companionship, perhaps. But that's not what he does. That's not what he does. He, he creates a woman who is designed to be different from him, but a perfect complement to him. And so in saying marriage is meant to be complementary, this is what we mean, that, that the husband and the wife are equal in worth, equal in value, equal in dignity, equal in being created in the image of God, but have different God-given roles to play in the marriage. This is what Paul teaches us. Ephesians 5, that the husband is the head of the wife. The husband has the responsibility of leadership. He's to love his wife as Christ has loved the church. The wife is to respect and honor and love her husband. They're different, but they're complementary. They go together. Now we see marriage is, is complementary. We also see that it's a covenant. It's a covenantal relationship. And I want us to see that as well in Genesis 2:24. This is the great conclusion of the passage in verse 24 where he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. If you have the older translations, perhaps it says, He shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He is to leave his parents and to cleave to his wife. However, cleave or hold fast, I'm not sure either of those really get at the depth of what the word is saying to us. It's really expressed well in saying that the two become one flesh. Isn't that a picture of the unity that is created, that that two have come together so tightly, so profoundly, with such a a depth to the unity, that they are now one flesh, and and that it's a oneness that cannot be separated back out into a two-ness. That's the the beauty, and that's the, the tightness of the cleaving or the holding fast it is, later Bible writers would reflect on that and say it's a covenant. That's what it is. It's a covenant relationship. Proverbs 2.17 speaks about marriage, talking about the covenant of your youth. Malachi 2.14, your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. What they read in this is that they see it's a covenant relationship between two people. Now what's helpful about this is to contrast that to some other kinds of relationships. Um, Tim Keller made a a very helpful distinction in in the book that was recommended to us last year at our marriage conference, his book, The Meaning of Marriage, that Pastor Ron Svensson was was talking about. And he says in there that that marriage being a covenant relationship is different from what we ordinarily know as a consumer relationship. A consumer relationship versus our covenant relationship. And in society today, what, what often happens, and this is what we see all the time, is that marriage becomes thought of as though it were a consumer relationship, not covenant relationship. What does that mean? In a consumer relationship, it's essentially an economic relationship where uh, two people might enter into a relationship where one is providing a good or a service to the other person, and you enter into it recognizing that I'm in this relationship for what I can get out of it. And I I will stay in it so long as I get what I want at terms that are acceptable to me. But if something changes and I'm either no longer getting the the product that I desire or the 
the terms have changed so that the cost has become too high, but I am free to get out of that and to go seek a new consumer relationship somewhere else. The idea being that the ultimate good that the person is after is their own individual happiness. And they will do whatever is necessary to provide for individual happiness. That is exactly the kind of relationship I have with supercuts. It is a consumer relationship. I go there because they provide a service that I am pleased with. You may think I shouldn't be pleased with it, but I am. It's okay. It's a price that is acceptable to me. And so I go there. And that's, that's as, as far as it goes. But if another barber were to open up nearby and they provided a better haircut for a cheaper price, it somehow made me happier, I would have no qualms about leaving Supercuts. Okay? They may have a loyalty program, but I'm not that loyal. I would go to a new barber. I have no deep ties to Supercuts. And that's the way, he says, that, that we've often begun to think about marriage is a consumer relationship, one more that I enter into because I think it will increase my happiness. That I see there is something I get out of it and, and the cost that I have to put into it is acceptable to me, so I stay there. Until either the product I'm getting back that supplies my happiness changes and I'm not as pleased with it anymore, or the cost gets too high, or whatever, I'm going to think, you know what, maybe it's time to shop around. Maybe it's time to see what else is on the market. Now, the Bible's description of a marriage as a covenant is far different from that. And the, and the Bible is filled with covenants, and in a covenant relationship, whether it's a covenant with God or a covenant that two people make one with the other, in a covenant relationship, the good of the relationship takes precedence over any individual need that one of the individuals has. It's the relationship itself that is significant. That is the covenant relationship that is to be honored and to be protected. See, the covenant relationship between two people is binding. The two have become one. And, and that cannot be separated back out into two. It's the relationship. And so, if I had entered into a covenant with supercuts, promising them my business forever, you can see how that changes things. Then I would not go into every haircut with this mindset that I'm always reevaluating the worth of this relationship. Right? I would go into it content that they're going to cut my hair and what happens, happens. I mean, that's kind of how I approach it anyway. But, but it's a covenant, right? There's no sense of always reevaluating what's going on, of always testing the market, of always asking myself this question, is this good enough? Am I happy enough? I mean, really, am I happy enough here or could I be happier somewhere else? Right? That's the mindset of being in a consumer relationship is I'm always evaluating, I'm always asking these questions. Whereas in a covenant, I'm committed to the relationship, not merely what I get out of it. And that's the nature of marriage according to the Bible. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. We've, we've mentioned this. Would you turn there in your Bibles if you have them? Ephesians chapter 5. Because what Paul does in Ephesians 5 when he's talking about marriage is he is repeatedly, over and over, comparing this relationship between husband and wife to the relationship of Christ and the church. It's too, because that's what it is. It's two covenant relationships. They're not consumer relationships. We, we could read these. I'll start in chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, 
so also wives should, should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Now, if we just glance down to verse 32, well, look at the 31. Here he's quoting Genesis. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What's that mean? Verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. You see, what Paul sees in marriage is the same relationship that Christ has with his church, that it is a covenant. And, and that we learn about marriage by seeing who Christ is to his church. Think if we worked that analogy backwards and somehow said that Jesus was now in a consumer relationship with the church. How long would that last? Before Jesus realized that he had gotten himself into something in which he was asked to give infinitely more to us than he will ever get in return. But the beauty is that he has taken us for his bride. And Paul here is capitalizing on this thing. He says he knows that the love of Christ for his people is a covenant love. Jesus isn't in it for what he's going to get out of it, to fulfill his happiness, to fulfill his desires and unmet needs that he's brought into it. It's a love, rather, that God has sovereignly chosen and sovereignly placed on each person from before the creation of the world, even before they were born. He chose us in Christ to be his. And he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love that will never be taken away and Paul says, that is the model of marriage. That is the model, not that we will ever uh, perfectly copy Christ in that kind of love, but this is the model that we are to follow. Think about the, the promises that, that we make at our weddings. What do we say? In the vows, we don't say, I love you, so I'm marrying you. We say, I promise that I will love you. In richer or poorer, in sickness and health, till death do we part, it's a promise that the love will go on, the relationship will be established and it will be protected, and that will be the highest priority. Because the relationship is what takes preeminence in the marriage covenant. Now, here's what's so wonderful about this, very practically speaking, is that it's only in that environment, marriage as a covenant, in which a marriage can thrive, and which it can be filled with both grace and self-giving love. Grace and self-giving love can only exist in a marriage covenant, not a consumer relationship. First, your marriage can be grounded in grace. You see, a consumer relationship is fine for economic relationships. That's exactly what it's meant for. That's its purpose. But it's a terrible model for our interpersonal relationships, for our friendships, for our marriages. Because the consumer relationship, when we think about it, it's all about performance. It's all about working to continually impress the other, knowing that they have other options out there. And therefore, we must always, if you're the, the vendor, if you're the one providing the goods and services, you always have to impress them. You always have to put your best foot forward. And, and on the other side, when you're the, the consumer, you're always evaluating. 
you're constantly in this mode of asking if this is good enough. Am I happy enough? And that's exhausting. That is, that is exhausting. And the very fact that those questions are on the table in a consumer relationship is often enough to make people leave marriages, isn't it? Just the fact of those questions and the, the beauty of the covenant is that all those questions are off the table. They're, they're just not even there. Because each of us has already committed before God and these witnesses that we are going to love them till death do us part. It is a covenantal bond. And so questions of, of evaluating are just off the table. They don't make any difference. And you know what that does? That makes room in the relationship for grace. That makes room in the relationship for us to treat each other not as the other person deserves. That makes room for us to allow love to cover over a multitude of sins. That gives room in the relationship for us to be honest with the other person, for us to not feel like we're constantly having to put on a mask and put our best foot forward because the other person is going to be evaluating us again. It's the only way that there can be a real honest intimacy between two people in which we are comfortable and able to share who we are. Scars and all, blemishes and all. It's the only way in which we can truly know and therefore truly love one another. See, isn't that exactly what Jesus does for us in the gospel? Isn't that what Jesus does for us? It's his grace that gives us freedom. It's the fact that we are saved not because of what we have done for God, but because of his eternal love and mercy towards us and this wonderfully freeing fact that God knows us fully and he still loves us. And see, marriage can begin to emulate that model only when it's built on the grace that thrives within a covenant relationship. And that's what allows us when when we sin each other against one another in marriage, when, when we're experiencing this brutal reality of what happens when two sinners are together in this closest of relationships and we sin against one another, that gives the freedom for grace. To love, to forgive without the fear that you are being evaluated constantly. So a, a covenant relationship, it builds in room for grace and it's also built on self-giving love. It's built on self-giving love. These instructions that we read in Ephesians 5 to both the husbands and to the wives require this. It requires a love that is willing to give of itself for another person. Right? We read verse 22 is to the wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Well, if a wife is going to do that, she is going to have to be willing to die to herself, to die to her own desires in order that she might submit to another and live for another. But it's the same for husbands in verse 25. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So if husbands are to love their wives, they too are going to have to die to themselves. They too are going to face that, that reality and that decision moment by moment. Multiple times every day, am I in this situation willing to die to myself in order that I might love my wife even as Christ loved the church? Am I willing to live for someone else? According to the Bible, the measure of our love, it's not about how strongly you desire a person. 
It's about how much of yourself you're willing to give up for that other person. It's about giving of ourselves for another. And that is, is it not, the description of God's love for his people. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The demonstration of his love is in what he gives. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Again, the description of his love is that he would give. His self-giving love for us. And that is the good news for us. Isn't that the beauty and the glory of marriage that as a husband and a wife commit to one another to live in a covenant of self-giving love, that the marriage itself becomes a, a, a reflection, dimly perhaps, but profoundly this reflection of the love of Jesus for his bride. And I want you to, to hear this, that the beauty and the glory of marriage, it's not just a theory, it's not just something that you get little glimpses of here and there when the marriage is really at its best and it's clicking on all cylinders. The beauty and the glory of marriage is actually something you see most when the brutal reality is rearing its ugly head. It's something you see when the marriage is not at its best. When it requires the most out of you to give yourself, to die to yourself in order to love another that's when we see the beauty of it, the glory of it. See, it's easy to love someone else when they are loving you back and and treating you with respect. But the glory of self-giving love is that it's the costly love, the sacrificial love. It's the love that is not earned. That's the love of the wife who chooses to submit to her husband even though it requires that she die to her own desires. It's the love of the husband who chooses to love his wife as Christ loves the church by dying to his own desires in order that he might serve her. It's the love of the spouse that is disrespected and dishonored and unloved and yet chooses to respond with respect and honor and love, even in those times when it would just feel so good to return a wrong for wrong. But as we understand that a marriage is, is the covenant that is based on the model of Christ and his church, we, we begin to love as Christ loves. The glory of Christ-like love in a Christian marriage is seen best when the glamour of human love is seen least. And that is the beauty and the glory of marriage, is that, that it, it's both perspectives. The, the beauty that, yes, this is what God has designed based on the model of his own love for his people, Yes, it's a difficult reality to walk through day by day, and it requires everything you will have to give at the very same time, because that is the beauty. That's where the glory comes of a love that is willing to overlook offenses, to die to itself for the good of another. That's the glory of the marriage. The covenant relationship built on self-giving love, filled with grace. And do you see why... The seventh commandment, then, is so vital. See why it's so vital, then, that God would would tell his people and command his people that they are to continue in their marriages to model his marriage to his people. That marriage is not just a human invention. It's not just a piece of paper. It's not just 
some arrangement that we have come up with that seemed convenient for a time. It is God's good gift to his people. It is God's good design. See, adultery is wrong not because the Bible has some outdated view of marriage or romance, but because it has the eternally dated understanding of what God has done. And it is a prism through which the love of Christ is made known to the world. That's the glory, even in the reality, of every marriage that will ever be. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for our Savior Jesus Christ, who loved us with an everlasting love, who gave himself for us when we did not deserve it, even while we were in our own sin. He loved us. He sacrificed for us, holding back nothing of himself, that we might have life. Father, we ask that you will take your word and write its eternal truths on each of our hearts. May we treasure it, may we value it, may we store it up, and may we practice it in our lives. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. We're going to stand together and sing our, our song of reflection together. Let us love and sing in wonder. Let's stand together as we sing to the Lord.